We're back in the very same passage that we looked at last week, Mark 9. There was more that needed to be said, in my opinion, about that passage that I didn't want to gloss over because it's just so important. So, if we're ready to dive into this passage one more time, we're going to look at some difficult information. So I have to put a little bit of a disclaimer right up front. It's going to be tough to listen to some of the things I have to say because Jesus talks about this place called hell. And we're going to talk about that very openly today. But the good news is in there because the gospel is always good news and it's always in all of Scripture. So if you can hang in there with me through some of the difficult descriptions and the things that we're learning about that, the good news is going to be here because we're going to see why hell exists and that God did everything he could to keep us out of that. So let's look at that. Jesus had looked, as we know, in this hyperbolic, exaggerated discussion about hands and feet and eyes, saying that it would be like you had cut them off. You can treat them as though you had cut a hand off if it offended you or cut your foot off if it caused you to sin or pluck your eye out if it caused you to be offended or to offend somebody else. And so that was a purposeful exaggeration. We understood that. He wasn't speaking literally. We're understanding that there are times when Jesus on purpose uses hyperbole because he wants us to get the it is like this impression in our minds and to know that it's very, very serious. And then after he gets through that, actually as he's talking through that, he says that it would be better to lose one of those body parts, metaphorically speaking, than to be thrown into hell. And then he has a quote from Isaiah, where maggots never die and the fire never goes out. Now, you'll notice, depending on the translation you might be reading that from, that in some translations, they'll have little brackets around that that includes that three different times. Each time he talks about the hand, the foot, the eye. And then in verse 48, it's a restatement of that. So it shows up three times in some translations. Other translations, like the NIV, it just says, footnote, some translations or some manuscripts include the same information from verse 48 right here. We're going to talk about that a little bit, but I'm going to push that off to the side for now because it's important for you to know something that I think is important for the skeptics who might be using that to question the validity of this. It's a brief passage. I always want to get it in our heads, and so let's look straight into that passage together. I want to read it again. This time I'm going to read it from the NIV. I did the NLT last time, New Living. This time it's the New International Version, starting at verse 42, and we're going to go through 48. If anyone, this is Jesus speaking, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, the NIV actually includes that little statement there, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Do you hear the hyperbole starting already? If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better, to, it's better for you to enter life maimed then with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And then there's the footnote in the NIV. Verse 45, and if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have, have two feet and to be thrown into hell. And then footnote. Verse 47, and if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes 
and be thrown into hell. And then we get to verse 48 where it says, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. And that's that quote from Isaiah 66, 24. So we're asking the Lord to show us in his mercy what this means so that we can get a better handle on the love of God which is going to show up so powerfully toward the end of this message. I promise. There's some Bible words that we need to know about because we need to have context for this. This is not a man-made concept. This is something that God inspired us because God the Son is speaking about that, which means that Jesus actually believes in hell. And there are different words in the Bible for hell. There's Hades, Sheol, Gehenna. They, st they have different meanings. Some can be the place of the dead. Other can mean the underworld. Some places might mean what Gehenna says, and we're going to look at that one specifically today. They're all analogies to something that's impossible for us to completely fathom because it's that awful. And so in trying to go from Greek into English, a lot of the translators thought, okay, we don't have time to explain all of that, and so they just translate all three of these words most often into the word hell which is what we see in the New Testament much of the time. And Jesus uses different words for hell as well, and he uses this one on purpose, the one in Mark 9, 42 through 50. It's called Gehenna. And Joy and I, when we were in Israel, got to see the valley of Hinnom or Gehenna. It was between two tribal lands, and so there was Ben and Hinnom, and so it used to be called Ben Hinnom back in the Hebrew, and then it got shoved over into Greek, and then there was an Aramaic derivation to get us to where we are now with Gehenna. So it all originated way back in the Old Testament, and that's what we have, and we're going to see that it was not a very nice place, not very nice at all. It's south of the old city that used to call the city of David or the city of Jerusalem, and it still exists today. So let's grab some intriguing context for the use of this word Gehenna. Why is this place so important? Because that's important for us to understand why Jesus is trying to give us this instruction in the New Testament. Well, in the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Jeremiah, we see that this was a place where some of the ancient Israelites who had turned away from God and started to worship false gods did some things that were so heinous that it gave this awful reputation to this valley. They were doing things, including things like, quote, passing their children through the fire. Well, what did that mean? It meant child sacrifice. And they were giving them as burnt sacrifices by literally throwing them onto a fiery heap in this valley of Gehenna. They were offering their children to a false god named Molech. So you can understand there are certain things that are just really awful. When, when our kids were growing up, we used to say hate is a strong word. And we don't want to just throw that word around and say, oh, I hate you or I hate you. That's terrible. We don't want to do that. But we should know that there are things that God actually hates. He says so in Scripture. And this is one of those things that he absolutely abhorred. He hated it. It's one of the things that God hates the most that we see in the, New, in the Old Testament because of what these Israelites had started to do by following a false god. It goes against all that God held good and sacred because God created human beings in his image and they were precious. And so he didn't want them just casually throwing them away for the sake of serving a false god. So we ought to hate the same things that breaks God's heart. And he hates that. So here's the context. One of the things that God hated was this awful practice. God commanded the people very specifically not to have anything to do with the kind of practices that the servers or the, the worshipers of Molech did. Leviticus 18.21. He could not have been more specific. Let me read that verse to you. He says, do not permit any of your children to be offered as a sacrifice to Molech. 
What is not clear about that? That's like the parent that says, don't touch that hot stove. I mean, he was so clear about that. And God also warned the Israelites of the judgment. He did this through the prophets. The judgment that would befall them if they continued to do what he told them specifically not to do. He said, there will be a consequence, and I will mete out justice to you if you persist in your rebellion like that. So, did the Israel people heed those warnings? <sighs> it would have been nice to say, yes, they finally woke up and got it, but no, they did not. And so, because God always keeps his promises, after he had warned them that there was going to be a consequence if they persisted in rebelling against him, he had to come down hard on them with judgment and with punishment. So after the warnings that he'd given through some of his prophets, kings in Judah began leading people back into these awful sacrifices to Molech, and including one of the guys that we read had, read called Ahaz. And every time I think about Ahaz, the term the evil king pops into my head because that's how he's always described. Ahaz, the evil king, that's how he was remembered. He led the people to do this awful practice again. He only was age 20 when he came into his kingship, and he only ruled for four years. Not a real longevity on his resume. And part of that was because he was so evil that God needed to reap judgment upon Israel. So Ahaz not only led other people to do that heinous thing, but he actually sacrificed his own sons to Molech in the valley of Gehenna. Since God promised to punish Israel. He had to make good on his promise. By doing so, Ahaz had followed the detestable practices of the pagan nations the Lord had driven from the land ahead of the Israelites, as we read in 2 Chronicles 28.3. So what did he do? God sent Babylon, a nasty country, to come against Israel. So a nasty country was actually God's agency of retribution and punishment. But don't think that he let Babylon off the hook either. Because they got what was coming to them later as well. But God can do that. He's God. So when the Jews were allowed to finally start going back after that 70-year exile in Babylon, starting to go back to Israel, they repurposed that valley, fortunately, because eventually that child sacrifice stopped. They didn't do that any longer. But they turned that valley into a big smoldering garbage heap. It was like the town dump. And unfortunately, it was fetid and smelly and awful and noxious because they would throw dead animals onto the fire, human waste, and even the bodies of dead criminals were just tossed onto this smoldering garbage heap. And that's where this phrase about maggots or worms and unquenchable fire comes. Isn't this just really good just before lunch? <laughs> wow, but it's here, so we have to look at it. This unquenchable fire comes into view, and that's what we read about, but I didn't really discuss it in detail, which is why we need to get there. That's why Jesus says, if you don't want to have something that's so completely eternal and a torment that won't go out, you need to act as though you have severed yourself from this sin that's leading your feet down the wrong path. I need you to get onto my path so that you don't have to go through that. Now, I think it's good for us to see that Jesus wanted to get this across to his his listeners, but as he was using hyperbole, this is not a literal description of hell. And some people might go, oh, good, Whew, boy, I'm glad about that. Nah, don't be so quick. I think what he's saying is there are a couple of attributes of this analogy that means we can't really even fully imagine 
the torment people are going to have if they're separated because it's not going to stop. It's the unquenchable aspect that comes into play, and that's why he's pointing to that specific place so that we would understand that. It's not going to be, oh, those who are outside of God's will are going to be annihilated. They just go into the ether. No, they're going to still, their soul will still be alive forever. That's why unquenchable shows up in this. And in this place of separation from God, the suffering for those who are apart from God will never, ever stop. That's what Jesus wanted to get across to us. Now, some people thought that the Old Testament prophets were looking ahead to a specific earthly event that happened in time. The one that we talked about when we looked through the book of Daniel, and Babylon was there, and then Titus came through and wiped out Israel. There's some of these things that took place in real time. So that at A.D. 70, when Jerusalem was sacked, they're thinking, oh, that's when they're going to throw some of these people literally into that valley because Jerusalem is right there. But it's only a temporary event. And some scholars will even go down that road. But you can't read the rest of the New Testament and come out with that. Because the idea of this eternal punishment continues to pop up again and again through the New Testament, especially through the Gospels, and especially through some of the things that Jesus himself says. So there's going to be a great separation. There's going to be a time when people are going to go to one of two places. Our souls will be taken. The grave takes the body, but God takes the soul, and then the judgment, and then the separation. So, Jesus wants people to know hell's not going to be a fun place. I've heard people actually joke. Back in high school, I had some party friends, and they used to say, oh, man, I'd rather be partying it up in hell with my friends than be bored to death sitting there playing a harp on a cloud in heaven. And they would say that. And I would think, oh, oh, man, if you could get the idea from what Jesus is trying to get across to us, you wouldn't even be joking about that. It's not going to be a fun place. It's not going to be the place that you'll think, whew, I escaped that boredom. No, 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 no. This is a place that Jesus clearly wanted people to be able to escape. He wanted to provide the way of escape so that people didn't have to go into torment, whatever that torment might be like. So no, it's not just a temporary AD 70 happening. This is something that's going to happen permanently. New Testament clarification, Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. He gets across this picture of a more lasting punishment. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, he says. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, you see the word destroy that just came up in that verse? A lot of people, the skeptics, will say, ah, but you just said they'll be destroyed, which means they'll be annihilated. That's not the word that was used there. This is the same word, the word for destroy there is the same one when the demons were confronted by Jesus, and they said, you're not here to destroy us, are you? Now, they didn't mean annihilated. They meant, you're not going to ruin us, are you? That's what that word means. You've heard about people whose lives were just ruined. It means, oh, man, they destroyed my reputation, or my job was destroyed, or my marriage was destroyed. That's the kind of ruination that this word means. So don't let that off the hook and say, no, they'll just be annihilated. They're just going to be burned up. That's it. It's not like when we throw a, a little uh, coffee cup into the fire if we're out camping and we just watch it kind of go. Poof. Now, you scientists, you're going to say, I know, but it goes into some other form. I get that. I know. But what I'm saying is that to us, it appears that everything is just obliterated and there is no more of that. That's not the case. Our souls live on forever. We're created for eternity. We're not created for time. 
And Jesus was constantly trying to get that through to people because he was trying to preach against that kind of temporal savior that they were looking for in a Messiah. He's saying, no, my kingdom's not like this. I'm talking about permanence. I'm talking about eternity. And you guys keep trying to make it temporal. And we still try to do that a lot today. Well, humans can throw other humans into a trash heap, but only God can throw people into an eternal place of punishment, which is why in Matthew it says, don't fear those who can hurt the body. Rather, have a reverential fear of God because he has the final say over where you're going to spend the rest of your eternity, not just the rest of this life on earth. So, the description about Gehenna, used as an example of hell, in this same context of cutting off a limb, Jesus is saying it would be so much better for you to go away from the things that are creating in you the kind of torment that will get worse and worse and worse forever because you're heading down the wrong path. Better as if you had cut that off than to go into this eternal torment, whatever that looks like. I don't know about you, but I don't like pain, physical pain, but there are things that, believe it or not, are worse than physical pain. I think relational pain is awful. That's why so many people, when they have a breakup, the suicide rates go up. People don't want to have relational conflict. It's one of the worst kinds of pain there is, which is why we long for reconciliation. We long for people to either forgive us or learn to look past some of our differences and to get back together again. We long for that in a human scale, and the root of that is that we long for that to be reconnected with God. Because everything in our vertical relationship plays out in our horizontal relationships. Well, uh, another thing that I think we need to look at about why this is metaphoric. Jesus is using this not to say this is literally going to be an unquenchable fire and we'll be in there burning forever. I think it's going to be worse than that. But I think a lot of it's going to be relational in scope because we're separated from the very one who could reconcile us and we won't be able to have that done anymore. The concepts of worms that never die... Basically, we're talking about maggots. That's why it goes into English that way, because the worms don't actually just replicate. They just continue to propagate so much that when they keep throwing more things on there, there's no, more food for them, and so there's more place for them to lay their eggs, and it appears that they never die. But if it was literal, literal maggots or literal worms would be burned up in a literal fire. So that's another thing that shows that this is a metaphor, but it's a really strong metaphor because Jesus does not want us to forget that. So if you can say, what's the worst thing you can imagine on earth? I hope that you'll say Gehenna. I hope that sticks because that's what Jesus wanted for his listeners so that you can say, but I don't want to go into an eternal punishment of whatever that torment might be because clearly if he has to use a place like Gehenna to describe it, it's got to be bad. Okay, let's look at this manuscript check real quick because of skeptics. Why are there differences in translations related to this passage? How come some put these little inclusions of verse 48 three different times instead of just once? I don't know. I don't know fully. But some people would point to that and say, well, that's a pretty major difference, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But it's not major in terms of our interpretation of the passage. It has nothing to show us different because it's not like they put something that was complete opposite in place of that. It's just that they did it three times. Why would they do that? Perhaps because there was an oral tradition that he said it each time. Perhaps it was a syntax issue going from Greek to Aramaic. Perhaps it was because they recognized that every time Jesus was driving home a point and wanted to make it really there, he would repeat himself. Simon Peter, you will deny me three times, he said. 
Why three? Because he wanted to get the point across. When it's repetition, he wants to get your attention. So they're thinking, okay, he's repeated something three times, foot, hand, eyeball. So obviously, the way he normally used to teach as an itinerant teacher, we knew him to always use this phrase, and it should show up every time. So somebody must have just taken shorthand that day, and they only tucked it in there at 48 because they wanted to draw an arrow up there and say, put this there. I don't know, but it's in keeping with what Jesus would have said and how he would have said it, which means that, like I said last week, if we're going to be good Bible interpreters, our hermeneutic principles, it's what the author intended that is important. And whether you include it three times or only once doesn't change what we think about what the author intended. What he intended was to convey that this torment's going to last forever, and I want you to avoid that. Um, ultimately, the inclusion or the lack thereof of verse 48 doesn't matter. Now, humans push God away. I want to use the last few minutes to talk very, very from the heart about how we humans, because we have that sinful, rebellious nature, tend to push God away. Let me use some contemporary analogies, some of which I've actually used as illustrations throughout the years, but I've just condensed them into these analogies. And then we're going to spend a few moments in prayer at the very close of this message. Let me use some analogies. Let's say that in the first analogy, you're a four-year-old kid. I want you to get into your inner four-year-old kid right now, which means you probably should start squirming a little bit, and uh, maybe, there you go, good. And let's say that you're standing on top of a very steep hill, and you're looking down that hill. It's mostly grass, but there's some rocky spots sticking out and some gravel, and it's way too steep for a four-year-old kid to navigate by just running lickety-split headlong down there with no restraint. And your dad knows that. And so your dad says, don't do that by yourself. You can't do that by yourself. You need help. And he starts to reach for your little four-year-old hand. And what, does, what happens when he does that? You pull your hand away from his, and you let mean old gravity take its course to help you start those little peg legs of yours going, ding, 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 ding. And down you go. You don't think it's going to hurt you, but you know what happens, right? Crash and burn. Here's another analogy. Let's say you're a teenager this time, and you're out swimming. You're swimming in the Pacific Ocean because it's gorgeous, and it's 80 degrees and sunny out there, not like Michigan at all. And you're swimming, and you lose all track of time, and then you realize, oh, the tide's going out, and I think I'm caught in a riptide, and I'm getting pulled farther away from shore than I intended to, and I'm getting pretty tired. So fortunately, a lifeguard on the beach sees you, hops onto a jet ski, rips out to where you are, and he has that wonderful life preserver, and he's going to throw this ring toward you. And he says, grab a hold of the ring. I'll tow you in. And you go, no, I want to do it in my own strength. You can't be the authority of me. You're not the boss of me. I can do it. I can do it. I can. Doesn't work so well. All right, this time you're an adult. And you have been swayed by human philosophy because the humans have pumped this stuff into your head because there are so many messages coming at us right now, not very biblical messages. And you've started to buy into this idea that this whole creator-God concept must be some man-made myth. And I just don't believe it. And so you're going to just devour everything you can get your hands on, and there's plenty of it out there, so that you can start dismantling and eventually just exploding the God myth, metaphorically. 
And so you put your hands, metaphorically, on the plunger as you're gathering more and more statements, and you push that plunger down thinking, I am blowing up the God myth right now in my life. I don't need that, God. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I can do my own stuff, and I'm just fine, and I'm happy too. And people say, you don't look very happy. I am. And then you race toward this uncrossable chasm. And you're working so diligently to maintain your autonomy. You've got these little sticks of dynamite. Every time you see another thing related to that biblical God concept, you light that dynamite and you're blowing it up. And you're racing toward this chasm. But what you don't know is that chasm is uncrossable. You'll never get across that chasm to the other side. And unfortunately, what awaits you is a torment that goes on forever. But all the while, when you're pumping the world's voices into your head, and you've got all these noise, this noise, the world's noise in your head, there's somebody chasing you down, and he's yelling after you. You're hurtling toward the chasm, but he says, stop running. I want to help you. I love you. And you keep running, and you keep pumping the voices into your head, and you block out that voice behind you. You think maybe you're hearing something, but you want to block it out because you're autonomous. I can make my own decisions. I don't need a God telling me what I can do or can't do. And he's saying, I made all this for you. And on your running, you're starting to see things that are so jaw-droppingly lovely that it causes you to stop in wonder and think, wow, that is superb. And God's trying to say, I know, I made it. And I made it for you to enjoy if you'll just stop running and let me enfold you in my arms and show you the grace I've got for you. And he says, the faster you run toward that chasm, the faster you're running away from the one person who can save you. Stop running. I've demonstrated that love for you because even while you've been trying to blow up the God concept... I've been doing something for you. In fact, I sent my own son because I love the world that much that whoever believes in him won't have to go into that eternal torment. And then they refuse to look at some of the biblical texts like John 3.16 and following that says, you're already condemned because you've chosen not to believe in the God who's continually revealing himself to you. Which means that when you push that plunger down, what you really did instead of exploding the God myth you exploded the one thing out there that could cross the chasm, and that's the cross of Jesus Christ. God says, there's only one thing that will get you across. You have to stop running. Run into the arms of Jesus. He wants to carry you across, and he'll do so, but you've got to stop. Can you just listen to God's heart calling to your heart? Just stop. Now, listen to the lyrics to the song I posted last evening on our closed group Facebook page. The song is called Dancing on the Waves. It's done by a band called We the Kingdom. And imagine that this is God speaking. I'm standing at your door. My heart is calling yours. Come fall into my arms. You're weary from it all been running for too long, I'm here to bring you home. I'm reaching out. I'll chase you down. I dare you to believe how much I love you now. Don't be afraid. 
I am your strength. We'll be walking on the water, dancing on the waves. Now, I'm going to do something different than we've ever done lately for an invitation. Some of you don't like to pray in small groups. I get that. So just find one other person, if you will, unless you really prefer to pray alone. And I want you to pray for just about three minutes for somebody or bodies that you know specifically, and they've been running. And you would love for God to just envelop them in his gracious, loving arms. And you're praying specifically for them to stop running and to hear the voice of God so that they can come back to him. Let's do that. And then we'll close with a final song from the praise team. So if you need to move around, feel free and do that. But let's spend three minutes praying for those who need to stop running. Let me also mention that if you, by chance, have been on the receiving end of some of those prayers, and if you've heard this and you've been gripped in your heart by the Holy Spirit, give in to him. Stop running. Call out to him. He'll take you just the way you are. And you can trust him to turn you into the new creation he has in store for you. And tell somebody about it. Tell somebody that you know would be ecstatic to know that you've made that decision to say, I've given up, I've quit running, I have turned to the Lord. Tell somebody about that.